Testing one two three. Testing one two three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode: Under the Banner of Heaven and Greek Tragedy. Today's date is Saturday, May fourteenth, two thousand and twenty-two. And as most of you are doubtless aware, the Hulu Network has produced a mini-series based upon John Krakauer's book, Under the Banner of Heaven. The fourth episode in the series dropped just this past week. The film version stars Andrew Garfield as a fictional detective named Pyrie, who is investigating the grisly double murder of Brenda Lafferty and her 15-month-old baby. As the series progresses, we find that Andrew Garfield, who is a devout Latter-day Saint, has to begin to confront elements of early Mormonism that he had no idea existed, except perhaps in whispers in the foyer at church. These doctrines are early teachings in the church in Joseph Smith's day, particularly in Brigham Young's day, but they are teachings that the Lafferty's relied upon in order to justify the commission of this horrific murder. And by that, I should clarify to say not all the Lafferty's, but those certainly who were involved in the murder. And included among these teachings is the one called Blood Atonement. The idea, taught by Brigham Young and others of his associates, that there are some sins a person can commit that are so grievous that they put them beyond the saving power of Jesus Christ's atonement and the shedding of his blood, and that require for forgiveness the shedding of one's own blood in order to make atonement for so great a sin. These ideas are incorporated into the temple endowment in the penalties, which were discontinued in 1990, but were still in full force and effect in 1984 when the murders take place. And so, in episode 3, we have a chilling scene of Brenda Lafferty going to the temple to receive her endowment in preparation to marrying Alan Lafferty, the youngest of the Lafferty boys, and the film portrays her with a concerned look on her face in her temple garb, executing the first penalty by drawing her extended thumb across her throat in similitude of her throat being slashed. The part that was chilling about it to me was to realize that what she was doing was ritually foreshadowing her own death and her own murder and the murder of her baby. It also suggested that the violent past of Mormonism is still alive within the temple at least as of the 1980s when all of this occurred, which is a little strange to think about it that way. I would typically think that all the talk of blood atonement was limited to the latter part of the 19th century and I think that probably the talk of it was limited there, but elements of it get inserted and incorporated into the temple ritual and get carried on even after the sermons on blood atonement have been ended. It still continues ritually in the temple. Now I do want to be clear about the nature of these penalties because it's easy to over-sensationalize them. I went through the penalties in 1979, November, first time I went through the temple for my endowment in Provo, after I had checked into the MTC. And many times after that, when I went to the temple to perform endowments for other people who were deceased, all the way up to 1990, I repeated all of the penalties together with the name, signs, and tokens. And the nature of the penalties is not specifically that if anybody reveals what happens in the temple, I will hunt them down like a dog and kill them in the road. No, that's the sensationalized aspect of it. The real nature of the penalties is that rather than reveal the name, signs, and tokens, received in the temple endowment, I would suffer my own life to be taken. So in that way, it is an indication of how significant and sacred these signs, names, and tokens are, that I would rather suffer my own life to be taken rather than reveal them. And that's all I really ever thought about those penalties until I started watching Under the Banner of Heaven. Because it does seem to me that with fundamentalist groups such as the Lafferty's and to other members of the church whose single-minded goal is to follow the prophets to the very best of their ability, whatever it was they taught, whatever it is the sacrifice might be, whatever it is they have to do in order to follow the prophetic teachings of the past, that they will do it. The problem with these groups is that I think it's very easy to look at the nature of the penalty, which is individual. I would rather suffer my life to be taken than reveal these things that happen in the temple, because if somebody does end up revealing what happens in the temple in violation of their covenant not to, the question might arise in some very, very faithful, devout, orthodox, hyper-orthodox members' minds that this person, this hypothetical person we're talking about who did reveal what happened in the temple and did not suffer their life to be taken before doing so, obviously, 
What should happen to that person? They've made an oath and a vow that they would rather suffer their life to be taken, which they've broken. Now they've revealed the sacred things that they were not supposed to reveal. And the question then becomes, if you say, I would suffer my life to be taken, the unspoken part of that vow is, by whom? By whom would you suffer your life to be taken before revealing these sacred items? And as I've been thinking about that specific language, it seems to me that something that I took symbolically, theoretically, not seriously, except insofar as the seriousness of the nature of the promise not to reveal. That another person could look at that very easily and not see it symbolically or theoretically, but see it literally. And perhaps be very happy to, or feel inspired to, insert their name into the unspoken part of that promise. I would suffer my life to be taken. By whom? Well, by me, I guess. Why? Because God told me. And the conclusion that some members of the church could reach based upon these old teachings, and apparently the Lafferty's did so, is that if a person is going to reveal sacred things, if a person is not going to be in line with God's program, if a person is fighting against what is seen as God's program and God's plan, then it is too easy for some extreme Mormons to see the act of fighting against God's plan and or revealing sacred temple ordinances to equal the unforgivable sin, i.e. Jesus' blood is not sufficient to cover that sin and the individual must shed their own blood in order to be forgiven of that sin. And if that person is unwise enough not to shed their own blood to be forgiven of that sin, well, that's where the Lafferty's who were involved in the murder come in. They are the ones there to take care of things. And as crazy as it might sound, they're actually killing people or blood atoning them out of concern for the person or people that they're murdering so that they can go to the celestial kingdom. In other words, what they're doing when they kill somebody is really a good thing because that person needs killing. Which raises the thought question, if a person, by the way they live their lives as a member of the church, is headed for a lower kingdom and not the celestial kingdom, and you know absolutely no, with every fiber of your being, no, that by killing them, you can ensure that they will go to the celestial kingdom. What is your ethical duty in such a situation? That's the thought question for today. And I think it is the thought question that undergirds what happens in this show, Under the Banner of Heaven. Now, we've talked about how Andrew Garfield, who plays Detective Pyrie, is investigating this gruesome double murder in his small Utah town. And as he's doing so, he's beginning to learn about things related to the history of his own church that he did not know about. But he continues to investigate the murder. It is his job to try and find out who it is who committed this murder. And that investigation continues to take him deeper and deeper into the violent past of Mormonism. This is especially troublesome to Detective Pyrie because, as I mentioned, he is a faithful, multi-generational, latter-day saint. He's married in the temple to his wife. He has two twin daughters, I believe, and they are very active, devout, and believing latter-day saints. So, as the plot progresses and Detective Pyrie is finding out more and more things about his church that he did not know about that are distasteful, and as he is asking questions about the history of the church with his bishop and told to not investigate that any further, simply to put it on his shelf and trust the prophet, we know that Detective Pyrie is dealing not only with the investigation of a double murder, but also with the investigation of his religion. And because he is so involved in his religion, an investigation of his religion, Mormonism, that begins to show that Mormonism is not what he had believed it was, but actually has a very dark side to it. And in this way, Detective Pyrie's investigation of the double murder and his second investigation of early Mormonism ends up becoming an investigation of himself. This investigation threatens Detective Pyrie's entire way of life. It threatens his marriage. It threatens his relationship with his children. It threatens his relationship in the community. It threatens his entire world, not only here in this life, but also 
in the eternities. What he had believed and known to be true, which is that by getting sealed to his wife in the temple, having children born under the covenant, as long as they are faithful, they will be resurrected and exalted in the celestial kingdom forever to live together. All of that is being jeopardized by this investigation. And I do want to say that the character of Detective Pyrie, even though he's investigating a double murder, which is obviously his job, and obviously he wants to get to the bottom of it and find the person or people who are responsible, that's one thing. But he makes a choice to take what he's learning about the church during this investigation seriously, because he doesn't have to do that. He could simply think, these are crazy, whacked-out Mormons. Every religion has crazy, whacked-out people, and these particular Mormons, the Lafferty's, are just nuts. There's nothing to what they believe. They've gone off the deep end and thereby discount what it is they're saying and what Detective Pyrie is learning through them and this investigation about church history and just throw it to the side and never have to deal with it. He doesn't do that. Instead, he continues to investigate not only the murders, but also church history as the plot thickens. Now, the name of this podcast is Under the Banner of Heaven and Greek Tragedy. So we're going to get to the Greek tragedy aspect here in a few minutes because as I was watching the premiere of Under the Banner of Heaven, which was the first two episodes back on, I think it was Monday, April 25th of 2022, it occurred to me that there was a similarity between what is going on in the plot of Under the Banner of Heaven and the plot of a specific play which falls under the banner of Greek tragedy. And this play I'm thinking of is Oedipus Rex, perhaps the most famous Greek tragedy of all, written by Sophocles and performed for the first time approximately 2,500 years ago. But we'll come back to that in a second, because I not only want to talk about the banner of heaven and its connection with Greek tragedy, but the point in doing this is to talk about the insight this has given me in a very common question in the LDS church, or at least in circles that I'm dealing with, because we all know that the evidence is out there, the evidence about the negative aspects of church history, and it's more available now than it has ever been. And yet, when it comes to dealing with this evidence, there are two types of Mormons. The first kind of Mormon is the one who will never, ever even look at the evidence. They follow the messages that they receive from the leaders of the church that they really do need less Wi-Fi and more Nephi. They follow the counsel to not look at what critics or enemies of the church have to say, but to read only the correlated materials produced by the church. And when it comes to who it is we should trust, they're very clear. We should trust only them. They are the ones who are appointed by God to be our guide. So obviously, they're the ones that we should trust. And anybody who says anything different or counter or contradictory or God forbid critical of what the leaders have to say should not be given the time of day. Now, I want to say that this is a very, very common experience. I've experienced this in the church. And what I mean by this experience is being potentially exposed to negative information about the church and recognizing that there is danger there in that exposure and then backing off and refusing refusing to be exposed. There seems to be a spidey sense that people have in regards to this. Sometimes the expression I use for it is whistling past the graveyard. You're walking past a graveyard at night. You hear some nasty things that sound like headstones moving and maybe corpses rising, but you don't want to look over at that graveyard. No way. You just keep walking past and you quicken your step and you whistle as you go in order to drown out any potentially terrifying noises or shambling footsteps gaining on you. I remember having my first experience in this regard back before I went on my mission. So this would have been 78 or 79. And I was trying to learn what Mormon doctrine was, what Mormon teachings were, what Mormon history was. And that was a tall order for a teenager, at least me as a teenager, even though I was using only the correlated sources at that time. But I read a number of books to help give me a grounding in what Mormon doctrine and teaching is. And one of those books was A Marvelous Work in a Wonder by Le Grand Richards. And that was very, very helpful to me to read chapter after chapter what Mormon doctrine is and then see scriptures quoted from the Bible in support of those doctrines. And I remember at some point after I got done reading that book and feeling that I had a pretty good grounding in what Mormon doctrine was, I took it upon myself to read through the New Testament. I'm guessing this was after I had read through the Book of Mormon and gained my testimony of the Book of Mormon, but now I wanted to read 
the New Testament to see how it compared with LDS doctrine. Because this was always something for my first number of years in the church was that I had grown up in a society, not necessarily a household, but in a society that considers the Bible authoritative. And I had absorbed that attitude toward the Bible with the result that I felt strongly that Mormon doctrine needed to be reflected in the Bible before I felt that I could accept it wholeheartedly. So anyway, I took myself to reading the New Testament. As I said, I got through the Gospels. The King James Version is not making it any easier for a 19-year-old in 1979, United States of America, to understand what's going on, but I was doing my best. But then I got past the Gospels. I got past the book of Acts, and I started getting into the Pauline epistles. And those were very, very confusing to me. Now, they were confusing for a couple of reasons. The first reason is I couldn't understand what the heck he was talking about in some places. But there was a second line of confusion, which is where I could understand, or at least I thought I understood what Paul was talking about in some places. And this secondary kind of confusion was raised by the fact that even though I thought I understood what he was saying, what he was saying did not match what I had learned about Mormonism and what Mormonism teaches. I remember feeling a disquieting sense of discomfort when I was reading these passages. And now looking back on it and knowing the term cognitive dissonance, I can say that that's what I was experiencing. But I can also remember what I did to resolve this cognitive dissonance. And that is in my mind, I just continued to read the words because I had to read the full New Testament, right? That was my goal. So I'm going to read all the words. But when I'm reading words in the Bible that seem to be contradicting Mormonism, I'm just going to sort of turn my head figuratively past the graveyard. I'll read the words, but I'm not going to think about them until I get down the line to another passage in another chapter that is starting to sound more familiar, that is starting to sound more supportive of Mormon doctrine. And then I will pay attention. Then I will read actively. Then I will quit whistling past the graveyard. So I have had this experience of recognizing that something I'm reading is potentially damaging to my faith. It has the potential to upend my worldview, and therefore it is dangerous, and therefore it should be avoided. And if it cannot be entirely avoided, such as my reading of the New Testament, it needs to be treated in such a way as to not really pay attention to the part of the message that is in conflict with the LDS Church's truth claims. So that's one kind of Mormon, and that's the kind of Mormon I was when I was 19, and it's the kind of Mormon I was for many, many years after that. But how did the Mormon that I was, who was scared to deal with damaging information, turn into the Mormon who began to investigate it, start delving in it, start trying to find out where it led to and what the truth was? Well, the answer, I think, is really kind of simple. The kind of Mormon I was when I was 19 and whistling past the graveyard for many years after that is a Mormon for whom finding out the truth about Mormonism is not as important as believing that Mormonism is true. And the second kind of Mormon that I became, and the kind of Mormonism who will deal with the evidence and follow it where it leads, and I'm not saying it has to lead to any place in particular. I'm not saying it has to lead to leaving the church. It can lead to staying in the church because there are members of the church who have investigated these things and nevertheless remained in the church. So I'm not saying that this path of study and research has to lead any particular way. What I am saying is that a person who will go after the truth and after the research and be the second kind of Mormon that I'm talking about is a Mormon for whom finding out the truth matters more than their belief that Mormonism is true. The first kind of Mormon would rather live with a beautiful lie than an ugly truth. The second kind of Mormon would rather live with the ugly truth than a beautiful lie. So what is the difference between the two? Why does one person, one Mormon, refuse to look at things that are threatening and another Mormon does? Or put another way, why does a Mormon refuse at one stage in life, like me, to look at things that are threatening and then later on decides to look? And once again, the answer is that the difference is that the Mormon who will look has determined that finding out the truth, even if that truth uproots and overturns this person's world, is more important to find out than the alternative of living in a world that is potentially unreal and based upon unrealities. And here's where we get to Oedipus Rex, because Oedipus Rex actually deals with this very issue as a major theme of the play. And one of the other ideas in Oedipus Rex is this idea of fate, that the gods have decreed the fate of men and women. 
And no matter what men and women do in order to avoid that fate, they cannot do so. That's why they call it fate. So before I get to Oedipus Rex, I want to tell you this story. I love this story about fate. It's a Middle Eastern story. And I believe it is set hundreds of years ago. The story runs as follows. There is a merchant in Cairo walking through the marketplace. One day, when all of a sudden around the corner, who should he run into but death? So this is quite a surprise to him walking along the marketplace. The sun is out. It's a nice day. He's in good health. And he runs into death, personified in the marketplace. The merchant is shocked. He's terrified. He turns around and he runs as fast as he can away from death. He runs to the inn where he's been staying, where his horse is stabled. He jumps on his horse and begins to ride as fast as he can away from Cairo. And he rides and he rides and he rides all day and into the night until finally he gets to Antioch. And all the while he's riding as fast as he can, he's looking over his shoulder to make sure that death is not pursuing him because he knows in his heart that what he's doing doesn't really make sense because how do you outrun death? Well, he is determined that he is going to do so and apparently he has done so successfully. Death has not followed him. He's made it all the way to Antioch. He goes into a tavern there, finds a booth in the corner, a dark corner, sits down, orders some food and drink, is still very shook up. The merchant is halfway through his meal when who should take the seat opposite him at the table but, you guessed it, death. And now the merchant, he's in a corner. He's got no place to go. He realizes that running was foolish in the first place, and he realizes that he has no chance at all of outrunning death. So he begins to apologize to death for the way he behaved earlier in the day and apologizing for why it was that when he saw him in the marketplace in Cairo that he ran away because he was just so shocked. He was so surprised. He did not think it was his time. And he tells death he's sorry. Now, at this point in the story, death looks at him and says this, I too was surprised when we ran into each other in the marketplace at Cairo because it was always here that we were supposed to meet. I always get chills when I tell that story. I got chills the first time I heard that story because it's this wonderful encapsulation about fate and how it is that fate cannot be overcome and that even when we are trying to run away from our fate, we run headlong into our fate. So I told you that story so I could tell you the story about Oedipus Rex because a similar thing happens there, only it's a little bit more complicated. I'm going to tell you what happens in Oedipus Rex because Oedipus Rex is a guy who tries to run away from his fate and runs smack dab into it. Only his fate is worse than just dying, which must come to us all. We all owe God a death. But his fate is potentially the worst fate that could happen to anybody, which is that he kills his father and then he marries his mother and has children with her. So if you haven't read Oedipus Rex before, I suppose I have to give a spoiler alert, although I'm not sure why a play that's 2,500 years old should have a spoiler alert, but just in case it needs one, there it is. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's not just an old play. It is an excellent play. It is one of the greatest plays ever written. The play opens with Oedipus being the king of Thebes and his wife, Yocasta, is the queen. And there is a horrible plague that is covering the land and killing the citizens by the cartload. And Oedipus finds out that the reason that this is going on is not just some kind of dispassionate plague that's happening out there that doesn't have any connection with anything else. Actually, the plague is the result of the displeasure of the gods. Because a horrible murder has happened in Thebes. And the murder was the murder of the prior king, whose name was Laius. Laius was originally married to Yocasta. He was murdered on a trip at a crossroads sometime before Oedipus shows up in Thebes. And when Oedipus originally shows up at Thebes, he becomes a hero through defeating the Sphinx. The Sphinx at this time was not just a huge carving in the desert. It was a living breathing, terrifying, man-eating creature. The Sphinx has the head of a woman, the breast of a woman, the body of a lioness, and the wings of an eagle. The Sphinx was perched on a hill and was devouring the Thebans and travelers one by one like popcorn if they could not solve her riddle. 
So this is the famous riddle of the Sphinx. It's almost like a scene out of Monty Python's Holy Grail. But a traveler would come along, the Sphinx would encounter the traveler and give the traveler the chance to answer the riddle of the Sphinx. If the traveler could not answer the riddle, the traveler was summarily lunch. And nobody could answer the riddle. It was just too tough. Nobody, that is, until Oedipus comes along to save the day. And the riddle, which is passed into legend to the point that almost everybody knows what the answer is to it now, was simply this. What is the creature that walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening? This is the riddle of the Sphinx that only Oedipus was wise enough and intelligent enough to answer. And the answer was, of course, man. Man is the creature that walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three in the evening. If we understand that when a man is an infant, he crawls on all fours. When he is an adult, he walks upright on two legs. And in his old age, he has to lean on a stick. So what happens now is that Oedipus defeats the Sphinx. The Sphinx kills herself by throwing herself from a cliff. She's a very poor loser. (laughs) And thereby, it ends the curse on the land, the curse of the Sphinx. So Oedipus comes in. He's a huge hero for freeing Thebes from the Sphinx. And he's rewarded by being given the kingship of the city and the hand of Queen Yocasta. And once again, Yocasta is a widowed queen, her husband, the former king, having been murdered at a crossroads while away on a trip many years before. And here's the spoiler alert. Yocasta is Oedipus's mother. And her former husband, the king, was murdered by Oedipus. But Oedipus does not know either of these things at this point. This is part of the incredibleness of this entire story. It is a detective story where Oedipus is the detective, and Oedipus has to find out who it is who committed a crime, the crime that's causing this plague now. This is a separate plague on Thebes. Thebes can't catch a break. First off, it's this plague and this horrible time they have with the Sphinx. Oedipus comes in, saves the day, marries the queen, they have kids, and now there's a second plague that's on Thebes. And this is the plague of the disease that's causing people to die because of this murder that had occurred of the former king, Laius. But Oedipus has to find who it is who killed the king in order to lift this second plague from the land and in order to save Thebes and save the citizens of Thebes from dying from this awful disease. Now, I personally think that's interesting enough, but the twist on it is that Oedipus, in seeking for the murderer, is actually seeking himself because he is the murderer. He just doesn't know it. But as his investigation continues through the course of the play, and as piece of evidence starts linking with piece of evidence, he starts getting a bigger picture. And that's where we have this crisis in the play. And the crisis is the turning point in the play. It's the place where the protagonist has to make a decision. And if he makes a decision one way, the action's going to go in that direction. If he makes this decision over here, the action's going to go in that direction. And the question that overhangs the entire play is whether Oedipus is going to continue to pursue this investigation when it's becoming more and more clear that he actually is the one who murdered his father. And if that's true, then he actually is the one who married his mother and had children by her. Is he going to continue with that investigation or is he going to stop that investigation as Jocasta pleads with him to? Stop this investigation. Stop this search. This is not leading any place good. It is leading to a place that is going to completely overturn our entire lives and make our world a shambles. So Yocasta, quite reasonably, by the way, wants him to stop so that their entire world doesn't get upended and they can continue to live out their lives in peace, giving only an occasional doubt to the pallor that hangs over their relationship or do they press forward with the investigation no matter where it leads valuing the truth and reality over living a lie no matter how beautiful that lie might be yocasta takes the first course but oedipus takes the second course and that is what makes him a tragic hero in my book. So how on earth does a guy end up killing his father without knowing it and marrying his mother without knowing it? Well, here it is in shorthand form. Laius and Yocasta 
are the king and queen of Thebes. We're going back in time now, a number of years. And they have a baby, and this baby is a boy. And they are thrilled to have a new prince in the house. And they want to know what the future of this baby holds, so they send to the oracle at Delphi, whose word apparently is as good as gold when it comes to predicting future events. This would be like a Mormon going to President Nelson to ask for a blessing on a baby, and President Nelson then predicting certain things. Well, you're definitely going to take that to the bank as a believing Mormon. As a believing Greek, Laius and Yocasta would take to the bank what it is that the oracle at Delphi predicts about their new baby boy, but the Prediction is bad, very bad. Because of the news about this baby boy, who, by the way, is going to grow up to become Oedipus, just so we're clear at the outset. The news about this baby boy from the Oracle is horrifying. The Oracle says that Laius is doomed to perish by the hand of his own son. Well, if you're the king of Thebes and you've just had a baby boy, and you get an oracle, which you know is true, that this baby boy is going to grow up and kill you, what are you going to do? Well, he decides that this baby boy has to go. He has to be killed. So Laius, the king, binds this infant's feet together with a pin and orders Yocasta, the mother, to kill her own baby. Well, perhaps not surprisingly, Yocasta is not able to bring herself to kill her own baby son, so she orders a servant to slay the infant instead and do it away from Yocasta. She doesn't want to see this happening. So what the servant does is he takes this little infant baby Oedipus out to a distant mountaintop and leaves the little infant there out in the elements to perish. This was called death by exposure and it was done intentionally to infants who were not wanted to live for whatever reason. So the servant leaves the baby out on the hillside, says, hasta la vista, baby walks away, figures the kid's dead by exposure, and reports that the child is dead to Laius and Yocasta. Unbeknownst to Laius, Yocasta, and the shepherd, is that this little baby on the mountainside gets found by a second shepherd. And this second shepherd rescues the baby from death. Now, the shepherd is not associated with Thebes because this mountain is quite a far distance away. The shepherd is associated with the country that is on the other side of this mountain. And that other country, or I should say city-state, is Corinth. And Corinth has its own king and queen. A different king and queen, of course, from Thebes. The king and queen in Corinth are King Polybus and Queen Merope. They don't have any kids. And so the shepherd, now who has retrieved this baby presents it to the king and queen of Corinth and they accept the baby as their own and raise the baby as if it were their own. This is Oedipus, who has no recollection of ever having been in Thebes or his real parents. He grows up thinking that he was born in Corinth and that his mom and his dad are the king and queen of Corinth. But then Oedipus starts hearing some rumors about how the king and queen of Corinth are not his real parents, and he goes himself to the Delphic Oracle to find out if they are his real parents. And the Oracle at Delphi, strangely, does not answer that question. You think it's a yes or no question. Are these my parents? Yes or no. The Oracle at Delphi does not answer his question, but instead tells him a horrible prophecy about himself. And the oracle tells Oedipus that he is destined to have sex with his own mother and shed the blood of his own father with his own hands. Oedipus at this point appears to have forgotten the rumor that the king and queen of Corinth are not his real parents. He assumes that they are his real parents. He loves them dearly. He takes this prophecy as gold. There's no way in the world he wants to kill his dad. There's no way in the world he wants to have sex with his own mother. And so he determines to run away from his fate. He exiles himself from Corinth. And if you can guess what country he went to in order to exile himself from Corinth, <laughs> I've got a genuine gold-plated no prize for you. Of course, he goes to Thebes. So while he's running away from his fate, he's actually running into his fate. He goes to Thebes, he kills the Sphinx by answering the riddle, becomes the hero, marries the queen, has children, and now this huge plague begins to happen. By the way, one other thing happened on his way to Thebes. A funny thing happened on the way to Thebes, and that is where Oedipus comes to a crossroads as he's walking along. He's by himself. He encounters a chariot with four men in it, and they are abusive to him, and they begin to beat upon him. And Oedipus who is not only brilliant and wise, he's also quite resourceful and can take care of himself, ends up whooping and killing three 
of these four men. One of them survives and runs away. And if you guessed that one of those three men was King Laius and Oedipus's dad, you go to the head of the class. That's how Queen Yocasta became widowed, because Oedipus killed her husband, not knowing who it was, not knowing it was the king, not knowing it was his father. And when the one person who survives the Oedipal onslaught at the crossroads gets back to Thebes, because of course that's where he comes from, he tells a story that's a little bit different because it doesn't sound like a really good story that four people attack one guy on the road and the one guy kills all three of them. So he changes the story. They're not being abusive from the chariot to this one traveler on the road, Oedipus. No, instead, they're driving along, minding their own business, and they are attacked by multiple outlaws who kill three of them and this one guy was the lucky one to escape to tell the tale of course he tells it differently than what really happened but this is one of the parts of the play that i really like because it really matches what i see and have seen for decades in my practice of criminal law and by that i mean how events that a person has witnessed can be subsequently massaged in order to make them more palatable to that person's point of view and the point of view of the people to whom he is relating that experience. All right, so now we're to the place where the play actually opens. All of this other stuff happens by way of flashback within the play structure, except the part about the Sphinx. The Sphinx, actually, the riddle itself doesn't even appear in the play. That comes from other sources, but it is understood that he destroyed the Sphinx, and that's how he ended up becoming the king of Thebes and the husband of Queen Yocasta. So once again, the opening of the play is Oedipus is already king of Thebes. Yocasta is his wife. There's this huge play covering the land and now he receives an oracle another oracle there's a lot of oracles in this play but the oracle is why is this play going on and he sends off to find out why and the word comes back because this horrible murder of king laius was committed and the killer was never found you have to find the killer oedipus and when you do and execute and punish this killer then and only then will the plague be lifted. Now, here's something that's really interesting, is that at the very beginning of the play, there is a prophet in Thebes. His name is Tiresias. He's a blind prophet, but he knows the truth. And in a startling turn of events, at the very beginning of the play, Tiresias just tells Oedipus, point blank, that Oedipus is the one who murdered Laius. In other words, it's all laid out there in black and white. But Oedipus is not ready to hear this yet. He is not able to understand that Tiresias is telling him the truth about himself. Because, as we find out, he's ultimately going to have to prove it to himself. But it is an interesting aspect here, and an interesting part and correlation to my own faith journey, that there were times when people would tell me just the unvarnished truth about Mormonism, and I wasn't ready to hear it yet. I remember around the time I went into the Missionary Training Center, in November of 1979, and one of my brothers was talking about Mormons and money and tithing and how that tithing just goes into their coffers and how big their coffers are and that that really is not a cool thing. That's not really a Christian thing. It seems to be more of a business-oriented kind of thing, having more to do perhaps with greed than charity. And I remember hearing that, and that was right in my face, but I was nowhere near ready to even listen. I brushed that aside with both hands. I remember getting angry that that kind of thing would be said to me about my religion when I knew it wasn't true. And I knew it wasn't true not because I knew any of the facts behind it, not because I had researched it, not because I had really thought about the implications, but I knew it wasn't true because, and only because, I knew the church was true and the true church wouldn't do that kind of stuff. The true church wouldn't behave badly. The true church wouldn't hoard money. The true church wouldn't keep bad things and bad information from its members. The true church was interested in the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that is how I knew that these allegations being made by my brother were not true because I wasn't ready to hear them yet. Just like Oedipus is not ready to hear what Tiresias says to him. And so what Oedipus does is he's got to come up with an alternative explanation for why Tiresias, the prophet of Thebes, is telling him this kind of garbage. And he comes up with a conspiracy theory immediately. There has to be a reason. It can't be true. So Tiresias must be saying that because he is in a conspiracy with Yocasta's brother, Creon, to depose Oedipus from the throne so that Creon can take over being the king. 
And in a similar way, when we're confronted with these kinds of bald-faced statements of truth about the LDS church or whatever our religion may be, if we're not ready to hear it yet, we will come up with conspiracy theories or alternate explanations for why it is people are saying these things to us in order to avoid dealing with the fact that what they're saying to us might really be true. And what are some of those theories that we come up with? Oh, well, they just got offended or they just wanted to sin or they never had a testimony in the first place, or they didn't study their scriptures enough, or they were lazy learners, or they were lax disciples, or they're under the power and influence of Satan, or they've lost the spirit or their past feeling. There are a multiplicity of reasons that Mormons have generated for being able to not deal with the truth about their church when they encounter it. All right, let's move on through the rest of the plot of this play in pretty short order. So Oedipus has become very upset by the statement by Tiresias the prophet and considers then that Tiresias must be involved in a conspiracy with Yocasta's brother Creon. So he demands that Creon be executed. However, the chorus persuades him to let Creon live. Now Yocasta wants to comfort Oedipus and she tells him that he should not take any notice of what Tiresias or prophets have to say. As proof of this, she tells him about the incident in which she, Yocasta, and her former husband, Laius, received an oracle, which never came true. And you can guess what that oracle is. The oracle is the prophecy that stated that Laius would be killed by his own son. But instead, Laius was not killed by his own son. He was killed by bandits at a crossroads when he was traveling away from the city. So in other words, if this oracle didn't come true, then you don't have to worry about any oracles. And you don't have to worry about what Tiresias told you, that you're the guy who killed King Laius. But when Yocasta mentions this crossroads, it makes Oedipus a little bit concerned because he knows that he had a confrontation with some people at a crossroads in which three of the men were killed by him. So he asks for some more details. See, he's curious. He's a researcher. He's not a lazy learner. And Yocasta tells him exactly where this crossroads was. And some versions of this have it as a crossroads, others as a fork in the road. But she specifies exactly where this crossroads was. And now Oedipus gets a little more concerned because that's the crossroads where he met these other four guys, three of whom he killed. So Oedipus asks some more questions. He's not going to leave it alone. He wants to find out the truth. And he asks his wife, Queen Yocasta, to describe her former husband, her dead husband, her murdered husband, Laius. And this description of Laius starts to sound a little bit familiar as well to Oedipus. So now Oedipus wants to talk to another witness. He wants to find out more about what happened. He wants to find out the truth. And by this point, he's starting to get this idea that the truth could really, really be bad for him, that the truth could really, really shatter his world. And at this point, many people in his position would say, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to follow this any further. I'm just going to whistle my way past the graveyard. But that's not how Oedipus is built, not from the beginning of his life, not through to the end of his life. He is always this kind of person. He's always intelligent, capable, able to take care of himself, and honest in how he deals with things. The truth matters most of all to him. It is the truth he will pursue, and it is the truth that will destroy him. But in the arc of the story, he starts to realize that the truth is going to destroy him, and that is where he makes the decision to pursue that truth anyway, regardless of the consequences. So as I say, he sends for another witness, and this witness is the one individual out of the four who escaped when Oedipus killed the other three men in the chariot. And coincidentally, this one person who escaped is a shepherd, and he's the same shepherd who was directed by Queen Yocasta to take this baby Oedipus out on the hillside and kill him by exposure. So this is a witness that is actually, thankfully, going to be compressed down into one person. It could have been two different people, and it probably would have been two different people if this were a real story. But in order to compress the action, Sophocles makes the witness about what happened with the baby Oedipus on the hillside and the witness about what happened at the fight at the crossroads the same individual. I think that was a good move on his part. 
So while they're waiting for this shepherd to show up at the royal court, Yocasta and Oedipus have a conversation because Yocasta can see that Oedipus is concerned and she wants to know what the matter is. And this is where we find out in retrospect by way of flashback that many years ago when Oedipus was still living in Corinth, Oedipus was at a feast where some guy gets drunk and accuses Oedipus of not being his father's son and that's why Oedipus went to Delphi to ask the oracle about his parentage and that's where the oracle told him that he would end up murdering his father and sleeping with his mother, and that's why he fled from Corinth and ended up coming to Thebes. But on his way from Corinth to Thebes, Oedipus came to the very crossroads. This is what he's telling Yocasta now, that he came to the very same crossroads where Laios had been killed, and Oedipus had encountered a carriage that attempted to drive him off the road. An argument ensued, and Oedipus killed the travelers including a man who matched Yocasta's description of Laius. Remember she described him for him earlier? So things are really starting to look dark now. For Oedipus, pieces are starting to come together. But he still holds out hope. And the reason he holds out hope is because his understanding from the investigation he's done so far is the story that this one person who survives the crossroads encounter says is that they were attacked by multiple, multiple robbers. And Oedipus knows that he's the only one who was there. There weren't a bunch of other people with him. And he is hoping and praying that when this shepherd arrives to testify in the royal court, that the shepherd will confirm that story, that there were multiple attackers, and that Oedipus will be cleared because it will not be he who killed King Laius. And all of these things that are making it look right now like he is the one will evaporate because this will be the one fact that will blow it apart and everything else must just be coincidence. It's not reality. If there's more than one attacker, Oedipus is in the clear. Now they're still waiting for this witness to show up. And while they're waiting, a man arrives from Corinth, Oedipus's hometown, with a message. And the message is, and the message is that Oedipus's dad, the person who raised him, King Polybus, the king of Corinth, has now passed away. And much to the messenger's surprise, Oedipus is not sad about this news. In fact, he's happy about this news. He's overjoyed about this news because he can no longer kill his father. And if he can't kill his father anymore because he's already dead, then that disproves half of the prophecy from the oracle at Delphi. And if it disproves half of the oracle, then it means that the other half may not come to pass. But he's still worried that he might somehow commit incest with his mother, whom he still thinks is the queen of Corinth. And he expresses this to the messenger. Now the messenger wants to set Oedipus's mind at ease. He's the king of Thebes. And so the messenger is going to be very helpful. And he's going to tell him, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about having sex with your mother because, you know, Merope, that queen of Corinth, the one that you think is your real mother, she's not your real mother at all. (laughs) I love this part where the messenger is trying to ease his mind and ends up undercutting everything. And now this messenger explains and fills in a huge block of the story that many years earlier, while this messenger was tending his flock on this mountainside, a shepherd from the household of Laius had brought him an infant, a little baby boy, and he was instructed to dispose of it. But this messenger who's speaking right now to Oedipus tells him that he didn't have the heart to kill this little baby. And so he gave this baby to the king of Corinth, Polybus, who raised him. So things are starting to look worse and worse for Oedipus. And Oedipus asks the chorus, who in some sense represents the citizenry of Thebes, if anyone among them knows the identity of this other shepherd, i.e. there's kind of two shepherds and there's called messengers or shepherds depending upon what line you're reading. But there's one shepherd that is sent out with the baby to expose the baby on the mountainside and kill it. And then there's another shepherd, the shepherd from Corinth, who encounters this baby and rescues it and takes it to the king and queen of Corinth. So the shepherd who's been speaking is the second shepherd, the one who got the baby and saved it and took it to the king and queen of Corinth. And Oedipus is now asking if anybody knows who this first shepherd is because he wants to be able to get the full story. And this is the point at which the chorus tells him, yeah, this first shepherd is still alive and Coincidentally, this first shepherd is also the one guy out of the four 
who survived the battle at the crossroads where Oedipus killed the other three men. So this is handy because this is the witness that they've been waiting for. And now there's another witness that Oedipus wants to talk to, the first shepherd. He finds out they're both the same person. So this one witness, this one character in the play when he arrives will be able to fill in both of those gaps. What happened with the first shepherd who took the baby out to the mountainside and what happened at the incident at the crossroads. So now the shepherd arrives and Oedipus begins to question him. But the shepherd acts kind of strange. He's begging Oedipus. He's begging him not to have to answer the questions that Oedipus is asking. He wants to be allowed to leave. But Oedipus is not going to allow this. He is going to find the truth, even though it's looking more and more dangerous for him. And finally, Oedipus threatens the shepherd with torture. And now the shepherd has to tell Oedipus the truth, that King Laius had given this shepherd King Laios' own baby because there was a prophecy that this baby would grow up and kill his father. And that because of this, Yocasta gave this baby son to the shepherd in order to be exposed upon the mountainside. Now, Yocasta, of course, knows this part of the story because she is the one who had the baby and gave it to the first shepherd with instructions to take the baby out to the hillside and kill it through exposure. But it is at this point that Yocasta realizes the truth. She realizes completely what has happened and she realizes where this evidence is going to lead. And it is at this critical point in the play where she has an argument with Oedipus begging him to stop the investigation. It is where Oedipus is talking with Yocasta about finding this witness who was the first shepherd and also the surviving member from the chariot at the crossroads. And Oedipus says to his wife, Yocasta, do you know about this man whom we have sent for? Is he the man he mentions? In other words, is this the first shepherd that the second shepherd mentions? And Yocasta says, why ask of whom he spoke? Don't give it heed, nor try to keep in mind what has been said. Forget about it. Don't pay attention to it. Don't keep it in your mind. And then she says, it will be wasted labor. But Oedipus says, with such clues, I could not fail to bring my birth to light. And of course, that's what Yocasta is totally scared of. Yocasta says, I beg you, do not hunt this out. I beg you. If you have any care for your own life, what I am suffering, this is Yocasta, what I am suffering is enough. And Oedipus, trying to cheer her up, says, keep up your heart, Yocasta. Though I'm proved a slave, thrice slave, and though my mother is thrice slave, you'll not be shown to be of lowly lineage. So even though Yocasta can see where this is going, and she does have more background information at this point than Oedipus does, because she does know about the baby and the prophecy and the attempt to kill the baby by exposure. And she's starting to put pieces together maybe faster than Oedipus is, but Oedipus nevertheless is doggedly going to pursue the truth in spite of the fact that Yocasta is begging him to stop. And she says, oh, be persuaded by me. I entreat you, do not do this. Oedipus says, I will not be persuaded to let be the chance of finding out the whole thing clearly. Now, let me repeat this line again, because this gets at the crux of the difference between the first kind of Mormon we've talked about who will stay away from the dangerous information for fear it will upend their entire world versus the kind of Mormon who will research and study out the negative information about Mormonism in spite of the fact that it may very likely upend their entire world. And this was the line from Oedipus once again, I will not be persuaded to let be the chance of finding out the whole thing clearly. And Yocasta says, it is because I wish you well that I give you this counsel, and it's the best counsel. Isn't that what we would expect the first kind of Mormon to say? It's only because I love you, and I want the best thing for you that I'm telling you. Don't look into this. It's not going to make you happy. It's going to make you miserable. I know it will, and that's why I stay away from it myself. So Oedipus says, then the best counsel vexes me and has for some while since. And Yocasta says, O Oedipus, God help you. God keep you from the knowledge of who you are. And this is the other line that I wanted to underscore. The first is from Oedipus saying, I will not be persuaded to let be the chance of finding out the whole thing clearly. And the second is the counter argument from Yocasta. God keep you from the knowledge of who you are. 
There are certain kinds of knowledge, so life-changing, so life-altering, so life-destroying, that Yocasta prays to God that God will keep Oedipus from the knowledge of who he is. And Oedipus ignores her and says, Here, someone, go and fetch the shepherd for me and let her find her joy in her rich family. Yocasta says, and this is her final line in the play, O Oedipus, unhappy Oedipus, that is all I can call you, and the last thing that I shall ever call you. So she exits from the stage. We find out later that she kills herself because she cannot live with the true knowledge of what has happened. But Oedipus completes the play. He completes the investigation, even to his utter destruction, by finding this one last witness who completes the puzzle pieces as to the direction this first shepherd received from Yocasta when Oedipus was a baby and taking the baby out to the mountainside because of the prophecy that this baby would kill his father Laius, and this same witness who was the one who survived out of the four when there was the conflict with Oedipus at the crossroads, changes his testimony and tells the truth that they were not actually attacked by a band of robbers, but there was only one person at the crossroads who killed three of the four, and this individual is the only one who escaped to tell the tale. Everything is at last revealed. Oedipus curses himself and he curses fate and leaves the stage. Oedipus finds that Yocasta, his wife, and his mother has hanged herself in her bedchamber. Oedipus takes her down and he removes the long gold pins, the brooches, from her dress. And he lifts them up and then he gouges out his own eyes in despair. And on an empty stage, the chorus repeats the common Greek maxim, that no man should be considered fortunate until he is dead. Because, of course, everybody would have thought that Oedipus was the most fortunate of men. But before he died, this massive, massive calamity fell upon him. And therefore, it's premature to call any man fortunate until he is dead, because you never know what's going to happen in the final inning. So once again, bringing the story of Oedipus Rex back to the story of Under the Banner of Heaven, you can see that there's a similarity there. And I think that this is one of the reasons that the Hulu production of Under the Banner of Heaven is gripping on more than just a Mormon-themed or Mormon-related basis. In other words, people who are not Mormons are probably going to see a lot that is compelling in this movie too because it strikes upon this ancient theme where the detective is searching for the truth and the truth is starting to look more and more like it's going to upend his entire world. It's going to destroy his world. It has the potential of destroying his family. It has the potential of ruining him for eternity. And yet, the detective, like Oedipus Rex, will continue to seek out the truth. At least I'm guessing that's what happens. I haven't seen anything past episode four now. We'll have to see what happens. But this detective, I'm betting, will continue to seek out the truth because the truth is more important to him than his own religious beliefs, no matter how sincerely held. The truth is more important than his own worldview, no matter how seriously he believes it. And the truth is more important to him than his own place in his family, than his own place in society. Because as a general rule, the Mormon church and Mormon culture will kick out of its society a member who discovers and talks about the negative aspects of Mormonism and its history as quickly and surely as an ancient Greek culture and society would kick out a member who killed his father and married his mother. And so by the end of Under the Banner of Heaven, I don't know that Detective Pyrie will put out his own eyes, but I suspect his world that he has known within his religious framework of Mormonism will be destroyed and he will have to begin to put the pieces together to form a new framework, a framework based on truth that he can proceed to build his life around once more. It is more than the phoenix that can rise from the ashes. If you like what you hear at Radio Free Mormon, I encourage you to go to RadioFreeMormon.org and make a donation today. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. I also want to take this chance to thank all of my listeners who have made contributions, and are continuing to make contributions to Radio Free Mormon. I could not do this without you. Now, this has been a bit of a heavy episode. I don't know that there's much heavier than killing your dad and sleeping with your mom. So I want to finish out tonight's episode with a funny song 
about Oedipus Rex. Yes, believe it or not, there's a funny song about Oedipus Rex. It was written by Tom Lehrer back in the 1960s. If you don't know Tom Lehrer, L-E-H-R-E-R, I would encourage you to Google him on YouTube. He gave us many of the great songs of the 1950s and 1960s, including National Brotherhood Week, Poisoning Pigeons in the Park, and The Vatican Rag. This song, however, is about Oedipus Rex. It encourages boys to love their mothers. Only please, don't take it too far. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. From the Bible to the popular song, there's one theme that we find right along. Of all ideals they hail as good, the most sublime is motherhood. There was a man, though, who it seems once carried this ideal to extremes. He loved his mother and she loved him, and yet his story is rather grim. Once lived a man named Oedipus Rex You may have heard about his odd complex His name appears in Freud's index Cause he loved his mother His rivals used to say quite a bit That as a monarch he was most unfit But still in all they had to admit That he loved his mother Yes, he loved his mother like no other His daughter was his sister and his son was his brother One thing on which you can depend is He sure knew who a boy's best friend is. When he found what he had done, he tore his eyes out one by one. A tragic end to a loyal son who loved his mother. So be sweet and kind to mother. Now and then have a chat. Buy her candy or some flowers or a brand new hat. But maybe you had better let it go at that. Or you may find yourself with a quite complex, complex and... You may end up like Oedipus I'd rather marry a duck-billed platypus Than end up like old Oedipus Rex